is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 195, covering the week of November 11th through November 15th, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media buttons on our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can also uh, support the Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org forward slash support, or actually don't do the forward slash. Abbevilleinstitute.org at the top of the page, you'll see the support tab. Excuse me, I'm thinking of another website. You'll see the support tab. Click on that. You'll see donor options. You can donate monthly, annually, or give a one-time gift. It is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. You can also support the Institute by clicking on that Shop tab. You can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's good, high-quality, embroidered stuff. So if you want to support the Institute and advertise for the Institute at the same time, it's a great way to do it. And always remember that we do exist on your generous contributions alone. While you're at that abbevilleinstitute.org page, if you click on the little Amazon icon at the top, you can make the Abbeville Institute your preferred uh, nonprofit organization. So while you shop at Amazon, make Jeff Bezos pay us. So when you buy something there, we get a little cut, and it's great. It's not much, but it does help. Uh, so every time you shop at Amazon, you support the Institute. Also, don't forget to share our material on social media. Uh, Subscribe to our podcast, rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get it. Also, download our free mobile application. So you can have the Abbeville Institute on the go. It's a great way to keep up with the podcasts, the lectures, all the things we do. So uh, please uh, do all these things and support our mission. We want to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and we need your help to do that. So if you like the podcast, if you like the website, please consider a donation and support what we do. Okay, I want to start today not with people that support us, but with people that don't like us. And uh, this is fun because I get I get some hate mail here and there. I mean, it's just it's par for the course. But the hate mail always makes me laugh because it shows how stupid people really are. And I mean, I, I, look, this is this is the world in which we live. These people, in some ways, I feel sorry for them because uh, they can't get out of their own way. And some of these people aren't stupid. I mean, look, I think one of these individuals is actually a lawyer. Uh, but so he's not a, he's not a, an idiotic individual, but I mean, he's just so blinded by his own, uh, biases. He can't see beyond anything. Now you could say, well, you're the same way there, McClanahan. You, uh, you are blinded by your biases. I mean, look, I understand the other side. I understand what they say. In fact, I think I could argue their position better than they can argue it. But the fact is, it's wrong. So let me begin with this first email by Dick. Heritage, not hate, really? Please tell me what took place in the states of the Confederacy from 1776 to 1865 that a true Christian can be proud of. Well, no, let's see, Dick. How about, um, how about I don't know, that thing called the Constitution? I mean, James Madison's just uh, considered the father of the document. If you're saying the states, that's Virginia, right? 
1776? Hmm. Uh, that's pretty... Uh, how about that Declaration of Independence thing that Thomas Jefferson wrote? I don't know. How about, how about George Washington? I mean, you proud of George Washington? Maybe Thomas Jefferson, James Madison? I don't know, Dick. What do you think about those things? Uh, that's just a couple of things there. I mean, even if you want to be a nationalist, how about John Marshall? I mean, he's there. Virginia, during that time period. I don't know. Um, maybe. But, I mean, he his time frame is a little bit odd. It's almost like Dick doesn't know anything. Because he doesn't. Also, how would those who venerate the Confederate flag feel if black people went around waving flags that said, we wish white people were slaves? Well, I'm not, I know a lot of people that wave the Confederate flag, and I don't think, none, not one of them ever said, you know why we wave this flag? Because we want black people to be slaves. Not, not one person has ever said that to me, and I know a lot of people have waved the flag, and, you know, they would trust me to tell me things like that if they really thought that way, and not one of them has. So, you know, I don't know where you're getting this, Dick. Maybe the people that you know that wave the flag might do that, but... I don't know anybody who does that. It is undeniable that those who venerate the Confederate flag wish that the South had won the Civil War. Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, look, uh, it's, yeah, that, that's probably pretty true. And if that had happened, blacks in said states would still be subject to the most heinous system of chattel slavery in the history of humankind. Really, Dick? In 2019, you think that would be the case in the most heinous system of chattel slavery in the history of humankind? I don't know. Maybe Fogel and Engerman and Eugene Genovese would have something to say about that. I mean, so you're saying that the system of slavery in the South was worse than human sacrifice of the Aztecs and the Maya? I mean, that's saying something. Or, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, Poor treatment of Roman slaves who were forced into the gladiatorial contest to fight animals or die? I mean, that's that's saying something. You're saying that Southern the system of slavery in the South was that? Wow. That's not some history that I'm aware of. I mean, I wish Dick could show me that book that shows that. I mean, I've read Eugene Genovese and Fogel and Eggerman, I Time on the Cross and Roll Jordan Roll, and I, I can't put my finger on the chapter that talks about gladiatorial contests and human sacrifice. But maybe, maybe, I'm sure it's there. I just missed it. Maybe Dick could enlighten us on how that's in the book somewhere. I don't, I'm sure he's read those books cover to cover several times, so he could probably point it right out to the page and show me the evidence that that actually happened. And before you dispute this, I refer to the founding documents of the Confederacy and to the never-ending reign of terror that the survivors of the war subjected blacks to after the federal troops left. Okay. So you're saying that, but this is heinous slavery, but that's after the war, so they weren't slaves anymore. But I mean, which one is it? Is it slavery that we're talking about, or is it the Reconstruction period and then the 1890s we're talking about? I mean, which one is it, Dick? I, I need to know this. So I'm I'm confused now. I mean, I I wish you would you would you know make yourself clear here. I was born in 1950 in the Deep South. He continues, and have seen things so mean and hateful, it would make a brass Buddha kneel down and cry. Well, but I thought you were a Christian, but yet you're bringing up brass Buddhas. I mean, do you worship a Buddha? I'm 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 confused about Dick here. I, I'm not I'm not getting what Dick is. I'm, I'm really confused about this. 
The symbolic speech of every Confederate flag is we wish black people were still slaves. There is nothing in the life experience of the South that refutes this sad and ugly truth. Oh, yeah, nothing. Nothing. I, that's what everybody does when they run around the flag. Isn't that true? I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast right now that has a Confederate flag, I mean, this is what they actually think. I mean, all the people that have told me this throughout their lives, which is zero, I mean, I'm sure, I'm just missing. I'm just missing this. I don't know, Dick. Maybe you're on to something. And then you got Chet. Old Chet. Chet says this. I have one simple comment. And then it's like a paragraph. So, wait. I thought you only had one comment, Chet. But you've written me a paragraph. I have one simple comment. Why should we be in support of an army and its military personnel, regardless of each individual's personal intent or reason for fighting, when it simply boils down to an act of treason against one's own country, period? Well, I thought that was a question, not a statement. So, but was it a comment or a question that you're asking, Chet? So why should we be for that? Because these people didn't commit treason as one of the pieces. I, I do these two pieces because... Of course, they segue into something we talked about in the week, but because Confederate soldiers didn't commit treason, Chet, even people that are against the Confederacy have admitted that, eh, it's really a gray area there, Chet, and there's not a whole lot of evidence that they did. So, then Chet continues. I thought he had one comment, but now it's another comment. I served as a six-year combat Marine and find this act reprehensible. I don't even know what act he's talking about. I guess the act of fight of, of the war, I and antithetical to the very notion of a union, as such in part derived from the principle that all men are created equal. They aren't heroes, they're scoundrels. So there's unrun on here. They aren't heroes, they're scoundrels, undeserving of any recognition of any sort whatsoever. Um, so where in the Constitution does it say that all men are created equal, Chet? I'm, I'm, look, maybe you could help me out on that one because I'm, uh, I'm confused about that one too. Um, I, I've read the Constitution, I don't know, maybe once. I've, man, wrote a book on it. Can't find that in the Constitution, that it says all men are created equal. Uh, notion of union as such in part derived from the principle that all... Well, I know where that comes from, Chet. It comes from Lincoln, who invented that the Constitution somehow put that there and that was a part of the union, as Gary Wills, who's by no means... A pro-Southerner said, Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. He made it up. Gee, Chet. Uh, a notion of a union. So when you fight, the notion of a union. A union of what, Chet? A union of what? A union of people? No. A union of states, Chet. Uh, put them in a museum if that will make you happy. Why are you attacking me, Chet? I mean, did I? You know, if that will make me happy? Well, they're already in museums, Chet. We already got stuff in museums, but we've got these monuments that were built by the people of the states, the people of the cities of the states who wanted to honor the hundreds of thousands of Southerners who are pushing up daisies and their devotion to a cause, their sacrifice. Uh, I, I didn't put them there. Um, I, I think that they deserve to stay, and I think that they are a symbol of Americanism, which is duty honor, sacrifice, republicanism with a lowercase r, federalism. Yeah, Chet, I think those are pretty good things we should hang on to in America. And, uh, you know, these Southerners really embodied those things. These are heroic people. 
facing tremendous odds. No different than the Patriots who fought against the British in 1776, Chet. But I guess the Marine Corps didn't teach you that. Uh, I don't know. Probably not. But not on the streets of the very nation for whom they fought against. Well, I mean, they're in the streets of the South, which was their nation, so they weren't fighting against Virginia or South Carolina or Georgia or Alabama or Florida or Mississippi or Texas or Louisiana or Tennessee. And they weren't they weren't fighting against those, Chet, Arkansas. And a lot of these things are in cemeteries too, Chet, where you have dead men. Uh, honoring the dead there. And I don't know, there's something to that, right? And the fact that these memorials are put up all over the North, too, for the dead who fought in the war. I mean, I don't know, Chet. So many dead for a soulless cause by a soulless people who don't deserve honoring. So see, Chet thinks that these people don't even have a soul. Why don't they have a soul? Chet, why do you think that these Southerners don't have a soul? A soulless cause by a soulless people. Uh, would you say the same thing about George Washington? Did he not have a soul when he was fighting against the British for independence as a slave owner? I mean, the fact that all 13 states at the time had slavery and the British said the war is about slavery. Would you have said the same thing, Chet? I don't know. But we've got Dick and Chet here, the two stooges who write nice little fun emails like this. And it gets me to have something to talk about for a few minutes in the podcast. But all that said, let's talk about the material we have for the week because I think it... It's a nice segue into some of the stuff that we've we published. The first piece of the week, um, The Stoning of Stone Mountain by John Marcourt, who, of course, is in uh, Japan. He's one of our... We have two scholars in Japan now, but... Um, <laughs> uh, John Marcourt uh, wrote this piece about... This is very interesting, I find. Uh, and it... it <laughs> It has to do with Stone Mountain. And, of course, as the title suggests. Um, what happened was a uh, Japanese lady traveled to Georgia. Uh, and a lady from Japan, he says, named Yumiko Yamamoto. She's the president of a group called Japanese Women for Peace and Justice. So she made a trip to Atlanta and she toured Stone Mountain. And she said... I was impressed by this statue. Uh, but he was also impressed by the inscription, which reads this. The vast majority of those who fought and died for the Southern Confederacy had little in worldly goods or comforts. Neither victory nor defeat would have greatly altered their lot. Yet for four long years, they waged one of the bloodiest wars in history. They fought for a principle, the right to live life in a chosen manner. This dedication to a cause drove them to achieve a monument of greatness which endures to this day. So Miss, he says, Miss Yamamoto gave a talk about her experience after she returned to Tokyo the following month. And an encounter visit appeared later in the uh, Shukan NY Sikatsu, a Japanese newspaper in New York City in which she was reported as saying, quote, Although the Confederates lost the Civil War, they praised the courage and honor of those who fought and died for the Confederacy. I thought Japanese should pass down our own story, just like their words to the next generation. Japan also lost the war. We should honor those who fought and died for our country with the words, just like I found at Stone, Martin, Stone Mountain Park. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just think about this for a second. Here's this Japanese lady coming over here. And she says, you know, 
We should do this for our own men who fought in World War II. Yeah, they lost, but it doesn't mean that we don't love them and honor them. And maybe we don't necessarily agree with everything they did, but, you know, we, they're still our men. They're still our people. And we should be honoring them, not buying into the American imperial position that these are all bad guys. And we know the Japanese were pretty rough, extremely rough on Americans. And you have uh, Marines and, and uh, men in the Army who, of course, were uh, imprisoned by the Japanese during the war who have said, I wish we dropped 10 atomic bombs on the Japanese. So you have a lot of hatred there because of the treatment of American POWs and, every, and other things. But on the other hand, Japanese themselves should be able to honor their own people. But no, no. In fact, after Miss Yamamoto said that, uh, Marquardt continues. In Japan, Miss Yamamoto's Stone Mountain comments were attacked by the far-left group FEND, the Japan-U.S. Feminist Network for Decolonization, a virulent activist organization that opposes not only the Japanese self-defense force, but the presence of all American troops throughout the Pacific area, even though stationed on U.S. soil in Guam and Hawaii, FEND called the Georgia Monument infamous and linked it not to the heritage and history of those who fought and died for what they believe, but only to the 1915 reincarnation of the once defunct Ku Klux Klan. What the Japanese group, he continues, like so many others in the United States, either chose to ignore or failed to understand is that the vast majority of up to the 6 million latter-day Klan members who grew from the mere handful that resurrected the Klan atop Stone Mountain resided in the North. And of course, John Jack has written about this as well. Um, but I love this because here it is. You have this Japanese woman and finding value in the Southern tradition. This is where the Southern tradition is so important. Don Livingston and I were talking about this today. What is it about? This is why our, our, our slogan is what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. That Someone from Japan, from Japan, could find value in the Southern tradition. Someone could find that. Whereas you have these idiots in Japan who are infected with, Marquardt says, confederophobia, which is Paul Graham's great phrase. You have that. You have this problem in America with these people who are infected with this disease of confederophobia. All over the world. And the internet is, of course, making that possible. But somebody found value in it. This is why we have people that, that subscribe to the podcast that contact us from all over the world because they see, wow, there's something to this Southern tradition. There's something important about that. I, I want more of that. And so when you get to Boyd Cathy's piece on... Thursday, what the historic South has to teach America. This is exactly what he's talking about here, and Russell Kirk understood it. But you have the neoconservatives and the left working together to defame the South and say that there's nothing valuable about the Southern tradition. Um, it's just the South is the problem. The South is always the problem, and you can't you can't promote Stone Mountain because that's a bunch of traitors. But someone like Russell Kirk found value in <clears throat> the antebellum South. And to answer Dick, when he says, what can a Christian support in the South? Well, this is what, I don't know, a conservative like Russell Kirk had to say about it. 
John Randolph is the most interesting man in American political history. His wisdom and eloquence, curiously intertwined with vituperation, duels, brandy, agriculture, solitude, and tragedy. Though Calhoun, Langdon Cheeves, and many others, Randolph's, I'm sorry, through Calhoun, Langdon Cheeves, and many others, Randolph's opinions were stamped indelibly upon the South. A fervent Christian, a champion of tradition, <clears throat> the principal American expounder of Burke's conservative politics, Randolph of Roanoke abided by enduring standards and defiance of power, popularity, and the intellectual climate of opinion of his era. <clears throat> we see John Randolph of Roanoke lived between 1776 and 1865, so, but according to Dick, there's nothing to admire in the South. That, I mean, can't admire that at all. <clears throat> Kirk says, there are certain great principles which we ignore only at our extreme peril, and if those principles are flouted long enough, private character and the social order sink beyond restoration. In this, as in much else, Randolph was the exemplar of the Southern society. For the South had long been the permanence of the American nation, strongly attached to Christian belief, bound up with the land and the agricultural interests, skeptical of the visions of progress and human perfectibility, Imbued with the tragic sense of life, the South has not been ashamed to defend convention and continuity in this great, swelling, confusing republic, to abide by ancient norms of private and public life. The problem of the races informed Southerners that society's tribulations are not susceptible of simple abstract remedy. Abstract remedy. The rural life kept the South aware of the vanity of human wishes, the existence of providential purpose, and the immortal contract of eternal society. The political and literary tr traditions of the southern states endured little altered by the 19th and 20th century passion for innovation. Military valor, courtesy towards women, and the pieties of community, home, and family persisted in the South despite defeat and poverty and the intellectual ascendancy of the North. So it is that in our time of troubles, the South has something to teach the modern world. But according to Dick, there's nothing there. Nothing. This is why the Southern tradition is there and why we exist at the Abbeville Institute and why we say we need to promote what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition because people like Dick uh, don't get it because Dick grew up in the Deep South and he just sees mean things. You see, anything about the Southern tradition is valuable. We do, and people all over the world do. A lady from Japan goes to Stone Mountain and sees it. It's visualized. There it is. This is what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. These people love their people. <clears throat> is that not great? They love their people. And so when you talk about a love for people in Southern literature, two other pieces of the week, Phil Lee's Confederates were not traitors. And this goes right against what Chet is saying. And Lee takes a different point on this. He says, look, uh, we could get into this discussion of secession and whether that was legal or not, but the fact is, even the North didn't say these people were traitors. He says, on Christmas 1868, President Andrew Johnson granted all former Confederates a full pardon and amnesty for the offense of treason against the United States. After having granted the pardon to most of them at various times between May of 1865 and Christmas 1868. Significantly, the Supreme Court's 1866 ex parte Garland ruling concluded that a full pardon granted the legal status of innocence to the offender. In other words, as he continues, 
it's like, I mean, there's no, there's no case to be made for treason because the court has said, once you give a pardon, it never existed. Justice Stephen Field said, when the pardon is full, it releases punishment and blots out the existence of guilt so that in the eye of the law, the offender is as innocent as if he had ever, if he had never committed the offense. So these people can't be traitors because they've been issued a full pardon and recognized as American veterans. Not according to Chet, though. And of course, there were people at the time that disagreed with this. And in one say, case, you could say, well, by simply granting the pardon, you're, you're, they're saying that they committed treason. But we could make a case. He says that even Alan Gelzo is not necessarily on board with that. And Gelzo, as we've talked about on this particular podcast, is not pro-Southern. But even Gelzo says, you know, this is a little, this is very foggy, fuzzy, gray area. You can't really say one way or the other. The Civil War didn't settle anything, but of course Gelzo says, until the Civil War settled matters, there was a plausible vagueness in the Constitution about the loyalty of by citizens of states and the Union, and so long as it could be argued that Lee was simply functioning within the latitude of that vagueness by following his Virginia citizenship, it would be extraordinarily difficult to persuade a civilian jury that he had knowingly committed treason. You don't think. But according to Chet, he's a traitor. These people have no anchor. They have no concept of these terms they throw around. Traitor, uh, slavery, all these things. They just these are platitudes. They they're just they're thoughtless expressions produced by the modern establishment education system. And even for Old Dick, who's born in 1950, who's now in his 60s, right? Getting to be 70 years old almost. Uh, Dick still is a product of an education system that has produced, I mean, it's sad in a way, that's produced this kind of thoughtless expression of statements that have no basis in reality. They're just false. It's not true, but yet they continue to persist. And it only gets worse as the internet makes these things worse. And then, of course, we have the piece on Tuesday, Nathan Bedford Forrest, The Hero in Fiction. It's a review of None Shall Look Back by Carolyn Gordon, by uh, Jane Brown, who's a uh, professor at uh, North Carolina A&T University. Um, but real people in the South, I mean, Nathan Bedford Forrest makes great fiction because what he did was so extraordinary that it could almost be fiction. And of course, the story of the, the, the myth, not, not lie, but the myth of Nathan Bedford Forrest it's so fantastic that these are things that if we were any other civilization, they would talk about Forrest forever as they do uh, some of the other great heroes, military heroes and other civilizations. But of course, because Forrest is now tainted by political correctness and other things, you can't talk about him anymore. What we can talk about, though, are fake instances of history like Harriet Tubman. We've got a new movie coming out about Harriet Tubman. 
uh, which I'm sure is just going to be so historically accurate. I mean, we just could not get over as historians talking about how this thing is just accurate to the, I mean, it's just accurate to the letter. Of course, I'm kidding. Uh, but this is a, a piece that's interesting because it doesn't rely on, on criticizing Tubman uh, and her activities in the South. This comes from Canada. Uh, and it's Bernard Thorism, and he says, uh, Mike Hudson was an investigative journalist for the now-defunct Niagara Falls Reporter in 2014 and looked deeply into the city plans to erect a monument to the largely mytholo mythological Underground Railroad of the mid-19th century. Hudson wrote in August 2014 that, quote, City Council approved spending $262,000 to dedicate a park and erect a statue to a woman who, by all accounts, never set foot in Niagara Falls, Harriet Tubman. <clears throat> The city's actual role in the Underground Railroad movement is a speculative one. A study conducted by the city's Underground Railroad Commission in conjunction with Niagara University was able to, unable to identify a single site in the city with any indisputable connection to the Underground Railroad. So they're going to build a monument to a woman that never even set foot in the city. Mr. Thorism concludes, what Hudson's research revealed is how the city and state governments often willingly engage in what is best termed historical fraud for the purpose of attracting federal grant monies, and above all, tourists. This will not bode well for the latter, misled by the inaccurate displays masquerading as history. Well, we're going to tear down monuments that people want to come from Japan to see. I told the story about uh, one of, somebody who contacted me about some Chinese businessmen who came to the United States in Texas, all they wanted to see was the Robert E. Lee statue. This is, this is uh, amazing. This is back in the early 80s. And China had almost been completely closed off to the West at that point. They had no idea where <clears throat> Texas was, but they knew about Robert E. Lee. You see, people don't go to the North to look at Northern monuments, but they do come to the South and they want to look at this civilization that they see is so alien to today. They want to look at plantation homes. They want to look at monuments. They want to see the Confederate South. This is what they want to see. This is the tourism. Because it's charming. It has something to offer. Uh, and when you start making these things into politically correct crusades for social justice, well, then people are turned off and they stop visiting. The left can't figure this out yet. They haven't figured this out yet. They think, though, well, if we do this stuff, we're going to get more people. No, no, you probably won't. You'll probably get less. So then he quotes the entire, well, not the entire article, but much of it. And I'm going to read this because, again, this gets into the stupidity of people like Dick and Chet. Tub and myth central to DeSantis' plan for future. In one media account last week, it was reported that city planner Tom DeSantis would love to have a sculpture of Harriet Tubman standing outside the city's new train station, Underground Railroad Interpretive Center, the latter being a monument to a history you can't find in any history book. Why Harriet Tubman? DeSantis didn't say, but it doesn't seem to be a big stretch to honor a history that never, uh, that never took place with a largely mythological figure who made her living telling tall tales about herself to gullible audience, audiences predisposed to believe anything she said. There is but one reference anywhere to anything allegedly happening was now the city of Niagara Falls. <clears throat> and that one reference comes from Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, a brief narrative written by grade school teacher Sarah Bradford that is often referred to as Tubman's autobiography. 
According to one paragraph in Scenes of the Life of Harriet Tubman by children's book author Sarah Hopkins Bradford, Tubman accompanied a relative on a train that crossed the suspension bridge near where the Whirlpool Bridge stands. The Niagara Falls reporter discovered that of the 19 former slaves Tubman may actually have assisted, there is no proof whatsoever that a single one of them went over the old bridge at what is now the site of the Whirlpool Bridge. Tubman, of course, could not have written an autobi- could not write an autobiography, and illiterate, she couldn't even write her own name. Bradford, the author of several children's books, found Tubman virtually homeless in 1868, took petty, and wrote the book to raise money for Tubman's care and feeding. When it came out in 1869, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman was a bestseller. The book contains numerous verifiable whoppers, including an assertion that Jefferson Davis was dead when he was very much alive, and that Tubman had led 300 former slaves to freedom. In fact, the highest number attributed to her by modern researchers is 70, and more sober estimates are 19, mostly relatives. Tubman would be largely forgotten in Niagara Falls today if it were not for the efforts of a man named Ken Cottrell. Cottrell was a state parks employee who also owned a business called Motherland Connections that promoted fairy tale sugar-coated stories of the Underground Railroad here for gullible tourists. He was employed on the condition that he would not sell his tours while being paid by the city to promote Underground Railroad history. Cottrell t- reportedly told daily newspaper and television reporters that Tubman led 300 escaped cra- slaves across the Whirlpool Bridge to freedom in Canada. Reporters didn't bother to check out his tall tale. Funny. This stuff, again, it's infectious. It goes not just to the United States. It's in Canada. It's in Japan. It's horrible. Again. But, of course, we're the lost cause mythmakers. What we say is just fake. It's false. Fake news for us. We just say fake things. False. I mean, how can you say that the Confederate flag's anything but about slavery? How can you say that? That's false. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> this stuff goes on all the time. On the other side, I can say it because it's true. What they're saying here is not true. So, the whoppers that the left tells and that these people get into us with, these emails and other things, I mean, this is, this is why we exist, to try to explain what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, to point out things that are valuable for America today. John Randolph of Roanoke, the principles of decentralization, the ideas of honor and valor and courtesy and gallantry, the Southern gentleman, the agrarian life, things that are valuable for the future of America. And it's what people around the world see as valuable, but Americans, of course, blinded by their own predisposed view of everything through the lens of race, just can't get it, many of them. We've, when you have your dicks and your chets, you have problems. Chet can't see that these people were honorable soldiers. That even the men who were fighting against them, getting shot and killed by them, wanted to honor. But Chet, of course, six-year Marine veteran, nah, can't see that. U.S. Grant, who fought against them, says these guys aren't traitors. Well, who would be better to listen to, U.S. Grant or Chet? I think I'll take Grant. I mean, as much as I don't like Grant, I think I'll take Grant in that way rather than Chet. But I digress. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. <laughs>